Bank economists and other property forecasters get a lot of press when they release predictions of price rises and falls. But how reliable are they? Welcome to Your First Home Buyer Guide, the podcast for first home buyers who want to move it along and become homeowners. But most importantly, it is for home buyers who want to get it right. I'm Megan and that was Veronica. We're both buyers agents and probably old enough to be your mum. And that's a good thing because between us, we've got over 45 years experience to share with you and bucket loads of stories and avoidable mistakes. Together, we're going to make sure you get unbiased and real information you can rely on. We've got loads of free tips for you in this episode. And if you'd like more useful tools, head over to the website, homebuyeracademy.com.au. There you'll get access to our free webinar, How to Buy Your First Home with the Right Amount of Debt. You'll also find the holy grail of home buying education, Your First Home Buyer Guide, the online course of people who want to be educated home buyers. We have created this for you to help you get on the right path to home ownership for your first home and beyond. But before we get into the interesting stuff in this week's episode, here's the boring bit, the disclaimer. You of course know that nothing in this podcast is to be taken as personal advice. We always recommend getting the advice of an expert in their field who takes the time to understand your personal situation. We've done our very best to ensure that the content is correct at the time of recording, but things change rapidly. So always check with the relevant government authority or your trusted advisors to get the most up-to-date information. Today, we're talking about the stuff that makes headlines, predictions of property booms and crashes, neither of which are great news for first-time buyers, but should you be listening to them at all? It's a really good question, Veronica, because there is so much out there in the media and we've done quite a few episodes on what to shut out, what to listen to, but you actually co-author a report every year. Tell us more about that. So I love this report. It's my second favourite. I think everybody knows my favourite is the pain and gain report from CoreLogic. <laughs> my second favourite is the the report that Chris and I, who's my co-host on the Elephant in the Room podcast, and we do this report every year called the Fool or Forecaster Report. And in that report, we've done five of them now, we track the accuracy of the property predictions for the previous year. So our report for 2022, which we released earlier this year, showed that 85% of the forecasters got it wrong, and I'm not talking a little bit off, but a way off. And this certainly is not unique to this year or last year for that matter, and you can't blame it on COVID because our report that looked at the predictions for 2019 back then showed 87.5% got it wrong. Yeah, and we know that the banks got COVID wrong. I mean, how many predictions did we see where there were you know, ideas that, would come off the prices Australia-wide when instead we actually had a boom. And that meant that all of the 2021 predictions were way off. Exactly. So this is a pattern. It's a pattern that's not only because of recent history, but it's certain this has gone on many, many years. And in fact, even in those reports, I often go back and check forecasts that were made 10 years earlier and check those. I'll tell you more about those coming up. So because in the process, however, of I guess, trying to keep these bastards honest, I've also learned a hell of a lot about forecasting and not just the process of forecasting, but actually why it's so difficult to get it right. And then that makes me wonder why the hell, given how wrong they normally are, 
they keep publicising these predictions. Well, I guess it's a really good point because why would you want to stick your head out there if there's a really, really good chance that you've got it completely wrong unless you feel so confident that you've got it right? But, yeah, at the heart of it, we've got an appetite for it. We want it. Well, that's the thing because we humans, you know, we love – well, we find it difficult to process a lot of data at once. And so we look for simple solutions such as looking to forecasters to guide us. So I think one of the reasons – that they are quite happy to put these press releases out is because there's a huge appetite, a huge thirst for it, and they're always going to get published. They clicked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the property space, what's so interesting for me is that these, epi- these episodes, these experts um, are often economists, which, you know, I've always thought economists, what do they know about real estate? Because I'm not sure they learn a lot about real estate at universities specifically, and a lot of them don't necessarily understand the property market either, particularly if you're, you know, working in an ivory tower in a bank. You know, you, you're not that hands-on understanding really what's going on. And a lot of it's based on statistics, Veronica, and you and I are big advocates for understanding the emotional drivers of the property market and, and that that is such a big part of what drives prices. It, it's human emotions. It's human behaviour. And these sorts of things can't often come into these economic models that rely on statistical analysis and 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 watching um, what's happening with trends. It just cannot take into account human behaviour. And so this is a problem. So the, the economists are using lots of data from lots of different sources, most of it about the macro economy. And whereas property is very micro, yes, you could look at the 11 million properties in Australia and say, oh, they're all going up or down in value, but it doesn't actually work that way anyway. And like absolutely what you're saying is 100% correct because really humans are buying and selling property. And a lot of, you know, like for example, if you're doing um, analysis of the share market, you know, investors buying and selling companies, they, they perform differently than they do to humans buying and selling a home to live in. So the actual behavioural aspect of it is so critical to getting it right. And, you know, and and in the macro sense, of course, property prices are influenced by a a variety of complex and interrelated factors, such as economic conditions, interest rates, supply and demand, and government policies. And, you know, those models that you mentioned, that's what economists are using to make these predictions. But we've also had these really unexpected events, particularly in recent years, but this is factors. Well, this is the thing, you know, like we've had natural disasters, we've had pandemics, we've had economic shocks, um, you know, we've had the GFC, we've had all sorts of stuff that going back further, we had 9-11 and then there's been wars and various other things that in a macro sense impact what goes on. And the property market doesn't always react in a predictable sense to these things. It doesn't because the property market is a group of people, people with behaviours and emotions. And and I think, you know, perhaps what we need to step back and have a look at is that economists' predictions of property prices should perhaps be viewed as directional at best. Uh, and that definitely at best, because even then they can get the direction wrong, but at least they're more likely to get the direction right than the actual quantum. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even if you're an expert in the field, and you know, you and I have been in this this property um arena for a long time. And we still will not be drawn into making predictions about what will have happen to the property market. I've always said from day dot, 
I do not have a crystal ball. I am not going to predict where the property market goes. All I can tell you is what the behaviour is doing, the behaviour of sellers, the behaviour of buyers. And it's largely because markets can be somewhat irrational. They can go up when you're expecting them to drop, or they can suddenly go down even when things are looking really great. Absolutely. I mentioned a few of those big X-factor things earlier, but think about, um, you know, of course nobody predicted COVID. Well, actually, the odd scientist did predict COVID, really, when you think about it. I don't think, did anyone predict Donald Look, Trump? Hindsight's an amazing thing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> With unprecedented low interest rates and then the fastest ever increases, you know, over the last 18 months. And then there's advances in AI technology. Like there's so much happening and changing. Trying to predict anything is, is I think, a bit of a mugs game personally. I've always believed that. <laughs> so, I mean, even if you cast your mind back to the GFC, right, you know, back then it's estimated that only s- between six and nine Australian economists even saw it coming. And there's something like 3,000 economists yeah. in Australia. <laughs> globally, there certainly wasn't. Whilst there was indicators to, to some factors within different economies being under pressure, whether it was the banking in the US or effects in Europe, so the thing with forecasters, and this is why first home buyers need to be very careful about getting caught up with what they're seeing on the front pages. And they've got to also avoid being swayed by any bank economist that comes out and says prices in Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or Perth or wherever are going to go up 10%, down 6%, sideways. You know, they you really can't rely on it because you can come out. In fact, there was um, there were predictions from NAB that were earlier this year and it was it was a classic. I, I wish I could remember. I didn't write these down, but it, it was like they went from something like eleven percent losses to six percent gains. Gains, you know, over the same for the same period of time. And it's like this is just insane. If anyone actually, if anyone relied on that breaker, imagine the long term decisions that they'd made based on the forecasts of what is seemingly a reliable source and and has some pretty good brains in there. Like there's no no doubt. Yeah, they're not dumb. No. Doubt that these economists are very intelligent people. Just are the what is the way that they're forecasting the property market actually a reflection of what's going to happen? And the answer has to be obviously no. But also, it's like I think it's what we have to be very careful about is understanding why they're doing it. They're just they're doing it because they've got various business objectives. They've got clients that they're trying to advise and all that sort of stuff. And of course, they get media eyeballs. They get media attention through it. So I think what we have to always remember is not to pay attention and not to hold off. If you're holding off when NAB was predicting something like 11% um, price falls, well, you're not going to buy a property, are you? Because you're going to be thinking, oh, why would I buy now? I'd be stupid to buy now. Absolutely not. Are you going to get into that market unless you look at one of the other forecasts that predicts that they're going to go up? And then which one are you going to believe? Which one are you going to believe? And at the end of the day, if you had held off based on that information, then I, I, look, I couldn't tell you what the percentage was, but there certainly was a rise in the property market at that time. So you would have missed out on the opportunity to purchase what you were thinking of purchasing and the price you were hoping to pay. That's it. Because the market's moved beyond you. Yep. Uh, even a 5% rise for some people prices them out of, out of yeah, what they were the after. So this is another thing too, that with the pool of forecast, forecaster report, of course, we track which experts get it right in any given year. And so even if they do get it right one year, they might fail in future years. Now, there's a there's a, um, a guy named Christopher Joy, who's a well-known money market expert, 
and he writes for the AFR. Now, he got our gold star for a couple of years because he really picked the, <laughs> the 2000, you know, 16, 17, 18 downturn and he picked <laughs> when the market was going to bounce back to at the end of 2019. And we, wow, he's, this guy's a magician. What does he, what does he know he that everybody, that no, yeah, nobody, nobody else, else knows? But for the last uh, 12 months or so, he's been predicting the Australian property market's going to go down 25% and he has not adjusted that. I think he's only just recently gone silent on that. But ever since the beginning of interest rate rises and talk of interest rate rises, he was out saying it's going to go down 25%, it's going to go down 25%. He never budged. Others have budged and adjusted their processes, which I'll, I'll tell you about. I'll talk about scenarios in a moment. But this is someone that we actually we gave two gold stars to, and now he's getting the. Um, I think he's going to be wearing the dunce cap in our next one, um, because the best the best forecasters come up with scenarios. And there's one very well known uh, property forecaster who's not a bank economist or or a finance guy, and that's Louis Christopher. And he's, oh, we've interviewed him a couple of times in the elephant room, and he explains his his process of methodology. And he says at the beginning of every 12-month period, he puts together four scenarios, which were based on likely outcomes of various things and how they could play out in the property market. Yeah. If people cast their mind back, remember there was a, a 60 Minutes episode oh, yes. back in 2018. And um, so, Louis, as you say, comes up with scenarios and they're based on assumptions and they're based on if this happens, this is you know, possibly a pathway it might go. But what 60 Minutes did back then, and, and they did it with a couple of um, uh, property commentators, was they picked the worst case scenario and they made that, they made a huge fuss about that, it got picked up uh, across some, uh, all sorts of media channels and caused a great deal of anxiety amongst a lot of people. It was huge news. It was 2018 and the market was tough. It was tough. We're in the middle of a downturn and the headlines were something like 40% price falls to be expected, right? And that was one scenario out of several that he had put together. And Martin Martin North, he, who's, he also had the same the same problem. He put forward, four, I think, three or four scenarios. They chose the worst one, the most sensational one, and they led. And that became – and they didn't actually refer to the other scenarios. And as it turns out – how they were built, how the scenarios were built. They didn't even – Exactly. So as it turned out, neither of those worst-case scenarios came to pass – and um, both of those uh, property analysts were very public at the time, um, you know, against 60 Minutes for, for their reporting. And I think that that's certainly in the property industry, you know, we came out thinking, oh, my God, that's terrible. These are two respected property people saying this. And then saying it, yeah. yeah. But they were both on Twitter explaining that, ah, uh, no, that's one scenario and it's worst case. And, in fact, I think Martin, if I, my memory serves me correctly, said, Something like, well, I sort of gave that prob- that scenario like a 5% probability. Yes, that's right. And he had a couple of other scenarios that had a higher probability. And I can't tell you, I, I don't know that we've even looked that deeply into it, but they were more likely and far less excessive in, in their predictions. So, it, you know, so you can see how the media has a different objective so there's the the forecasters have their objective, the media has a different objective, and so us as consumers, as readers, we have to have our own objective when we're looking at this stuff. You know, 
it, the bank forecasters, right, they are the ones that mostly hit the headlines. Those two, Lou Christopher and um, and Martin North, they're not bank forecast, but uh, bank economists. Um, but the bank uh, forecasters actually generally the most wrong or the wrongest. Is that a word? They're the, mo- they're more. They're not wronger. the wrongest. Is actually more wrong. Least right. <laughs> um, and the, also, the papers on these publications, they rarely track the adjustments that are made over time. And they certainly don't refer to their own articles if something doesn't go in the same way as they reported they it. They don't tend to. Every now and then, and I have referred to that in the last full forecast report, I did refer to one journalist who does tend to do that, to actually keeps it all in context by explaining how things have changed. Um, but most just report the number on the latest press release. Which is really, you know, well, it lacks accountability. You know, it might have something to do with why they keep releasing the forecast because it it creates a clickbait and and that's what gets um, the journalists their their ideas for future stories. The more we click on these articles when we're on social media or when we're reading um, news online, the more we click on those, the more they say, "All right, well, they like this. The the, the public likes this. We're going to do more of it." And we're going to make it more sensational. And that's what they're in the editorial meetings. That's what the editor's banging on about. So you, you can see where, where that appetite comes from, right? So now, so it's, we just keep feeding the hungry animal. Um, there's also some human biases or behavioral biases that come out here. And there's one that's called overconfidence. You know, it's something that experts actually can suffer from. Now, we are property experts, (laughs) and I have to be careful about this myself. I'm sure you are as well, Megan. I think that that you've got to be – we have to recognise that we have biases, and once we recognise that, we can be more more alert, if you like, and more able to go, oh, catch yourself in the moment. But this is the thing that I've seen quite often with some of these – property analysts and and these economists is this overconfidence actually really quite shocks me that they can be wrong so much of the time so publicly and yet they keep doing it and with conviction because the stats can support the conviction well of course as opposed to the the uh, the idea coming from the analysis yes yeah and so the problem is of course the public if they don't understand the problem with these these predictions can be swept along with that overconfidence. And and we've referred to it earlier, Veronica, you know, there is a, a strong theory, and you and I both um, believe quite heavily in this, is that economists do forget that human behaviour is the thing that's driving the market. Of course we have supply, of course we have demand, but that, become, that comes from human behaviour. They're busy making mathematical equations that predict human behaviour without actually seeking to understand what the human behaviour is, what the drivers are, um, and what might intercept that behaviour and that thinking amongst buyers and sellers that might interrupt the market or, or the, the, the models that they're placing their predictions on. Absolutely. Now, over the years, and I'm sure you've had this too, Megan, I've had so many journalists call me and ask me for the top five or top ten suburbs. Always picks. around Christmas New Year. No, no <laughs> word of a lie. I would have 10 or 12 inquiries for predictions. For 2024, that'll be the next lot. And so I've always instinctively resisted answering these questions because, you know, I know the property is a long-term investment. I'm thinking, well, also back then when I used to not know why I didn't answer these, I just instinctively it's also because I sort of knew that I didn't know. Whereas back to that overconfidence thing, some people are quite happy to talk about 
what they think they know, but they don't really know. But I didn't really know what was going to take off. But the reality is that as I've learned more and more and more about property, and I've learned more and more and more about property data and economics too, for that matter, I've also, that focus of, of property being a long-term investment, that just, just further embedded, that has not changed. And really trying to ride the peaks and troughs is a mug, mugs game. Would not agree more. Pick that. Would pick, not agree more. Yeah. So, you know, th- and that's all about turning down the noise, right? There's always this stuff in the paper. We have to make our own calm, considered decisions. I, th- I think on top of that too, Veronica, is our understanding over the long term that it's not just about picking the next big thing because the next big thing can have a huge peak and then it can actually just drop straight off the face of the planet. So often some of the best places to buy from a long-term view aren't necessarily going to boom, but they're going to continue on a strong upward trajectory. Trajectory. And that's not fun. Like, there's no media. It's the hare and the tortoise. Yeah, like, there's no media. Um, yeah, they can't do anything with that. It's boring, boring. as. <laughs> but sometimes that's the best advice. It's boring, but solid. You know, plenty of people are prepared to give their tips for best places to buy. We recommend that you avoid them because it's just as reliable as checking out your horoscope in the Sunday paper, trying to work out if you're going to find the love of your life this week. Particularly property forums on uh, social media. I spend a lot of time reading just to understand and getting a, a feel for what people are worried about, what they're asking about. And my goodness, the advice that comes out on some of those forums just makes me gravely concerned for the people who are listening to the advice. I get so upset. That's why I I very rarely dip into them anymore. Now, I have tracked many of these predictions of hotspots and growth areas, uh, and I've tracked them after they've had 10 years to prove themselves or not, right? So I've got a long memory. I've got like an elephant's memory, I think. And so (laughs) of the ones that I've researched, you know, only 20% turned out to be any good. And really my my gauge on that is did they do- That means 80% wrong, Veronica. Can we just turn that upside down? Yes, 80% is wrong. 80% basically means that if you just picked the median like for uh, Australia, 80% did worse. You know, Now, I don't like picking the median for Australia, but what I mean is that, that 80% underperformed based on the others in the area that they're in. So I didn't actually pick the median for Australia. But the reality is 80% underperformed, absolutely, it's, it, which is very close to the amount of property forecasts that are out. You know, then that's nearly 90% that are out. So, right, so why are they wrong? Now, some of these predictions on areas are biased. Like, you know, some of these anti-capital capital city experts you know, who talk up regional locations and make money out of helping people buy in regional locations. Which doesn't necessarily, now don't get us wrong, we're not saying that these areas are not right. Where no. I guess what you're doing is wrapping up, um, as some experts do. An example of bias. A bias. Yes. So there's, for example, I wrote a, uh, a, a magazine article for an investment magazine on Sydney property market. And in in my research, I found um, a, an article, a piece that was written by one of these out of anti-capital city experts, and um, that was back in 2017, basically saying, don't buy in Sydney. Don't buy in Sydney because you're going to lose your money. And it was like, well, that was so interesting because actually that was written at the peak, so you got the timing right in that regard. But after the peak, there were actually a period of time of price falls. If anyone wanted to actually 
try to time the market, that would have been perfect timing. Not that I'm advocating it. I'm just saying that that the bias got in the way and actually made really bad call. And it has been significant growth since then. So those people, anybody listened to that would have missed out on that, that growth. On that growth. But the thing is that we're talking a long term. As I said, don't get caught up with me trying to ride this wave. I'm absolutely not. Even well-respected Peter Kalizos, who we've we've um, interviewed on this podcast, and he, he taught us about gentrification. He admitted to his own bias, and um, and that was in recently he was reviewing uh, research that he'd done 15 years earlier. And this is someone who's really rare in that they're prepared to put their hand up and go, "This is the methodology I used 15 years ago when I was working out." what suburbs across Australia were going to outperform their their city medians and all these Perth ones were wrong. And and he, and he, I said, how come? You know, and it wasn't that necessarily that all of Perth performed badly, which it did. It was more that the, the suburbs he chose performed not as well as some other um, suburbs in Perth. So they underperformed. And he was like, well, because I had this bias about proximity to the beach but what I've realized since is that the proximity to the CBD is more important than proximity to the beach. So I gave it the wrong weighting. He weighted it the other way around. So this is a fabulous learning lesson. And because he is a property educator and he's imparting that knowledge to other, other property experts, um, that's such a gift, right? Um, but how amazing to admit to, to recognize the bias, see where it was wrong, and then adjust. So that's a great forecaster really but there's very few like that out there um and look another example of somebody that i thought was really humble in how they explained how they forecast was shane oliver he's a, he's actually a bank economist at, and in fact we've interviewed many bank economists on the elephant in the room by the way and they've all been really forthcoming in in the methodology but in particular with him uh when we asked him about his methodology how he forecasts, he did talk about this adjustment process and i think that's the sort of thing that's not coming through in the headlines so that there is a process they're using, there's a purpose for it, but when you're reading the headlines, you're not necessarily knowing who has a good process and what adjustments have been made in the in the process. And that's where it's dangerous. It is. And and we know that many, if not most, forecasters get it wrong. And and you've been able to show and highlight that in your full of forecaster reports. And and we know that their predictions aren't designed for individuals to base their decisions on. And I guess that's what we really want to sort of make sure that people hear, 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 is, hear, is this, don't look at these forecasts as a way of making individual decisions about whether you should buy, what you should buy and where you should buy. We know that some forecasters actively work to reduce the impact of known biases on their work. So they're aware of it. And I think that's step one is being aware that you can usually find something to support your point of view if that's all you're prepared to look for. Mm, it's called, that's called confirmation bias. Absolutely. And we know that others are peddling a thesis or a point of view or um, a sales sort of, pitch. A sales pitch, perhaps. And they'll only get it right sometimes because, you know, in the law of probabilities, there's a chance, you know, there's there, there are certainly property experts out there who can put their hand up and say, I predicted that this would happen. And it did, but what they're not telling you is that they made 40 other predictions that something would happen that didn't happen, right? So, yes, they might highlight the one thing they got right, but they're not going to tell you about the others they got wrong. That's such a gift, I think, when somebody actually admits 
where they went wrong and we can all learn from that. As I said, that's one of the things I loved about that chat with Peter Kalizos. So the final word on this, go ahead, listen to these um, economists and predict and uh, forecasters if you're interested. But if you can't ignore them and if you can't see them in the context with which you need to look at them and you can't avoid being swayed by them, it might be best to avoid it because it's not highly valuable information. We talk about that, Veronica, in your first home buyer guide, the, the course for first home buyers. One of the things that we say is sometimes you've got to switch off the noise. You've got to turn off the things outside you. Once you've made a decision that you are in the right position to move forward with your purchase, you're financially capable, you understand your own position, then sometimes switching off all the other noise, all of the media, um, some of those well-meaning people who sit around you, friends, family, sometimes turning those things off is the best pathway forward. A hundred percent, because what we want you to be is an educated home buyer. And that doesn't mean ignoring important information, but it does mean knowing when you've done your research and you've made your decisions for good reasons, and then that's enough. You don't need to be looking for more or, or letting more in. Uh, a very quick note on that, that this course only costs $990 and you get direct access to us to help guide you through your negotiations. In fact, we just this today had a uh, one of our regular sessions with our uh, weekly campfire members. We call it our weekly campfire and we've got people that dial in and we have a chat about where they're up to with their property search and the challenges that they have. Today's was very much around things like well, what do you do if a retaining wall is crumbling? How do you negotiate? Who do you go to get advice on that? Or what if there's structures that are unapproved on a property? How do you tackle that? Where do you go to get the information to know whether or not I should walk away for the property or go for the property? And this is the sort of stuff and these are the sorts of questions that we get on a weekly basis. I tell you what, Without this intel, without this information, you would easily blow way more than $1,000 in terms of poorly poor negotiations or just not knowing what to avoid. So um, we just encourage you to sign up and do the course if you are serious about getting your first home right. In this episode, we've only touched on a tiny part of the huge amount of things you need to know to become an educated first home buyer. There is so much more for you to do. You can learn all of the steps in the right order and avoid all of the mistakes that others have made in our 10-step online course for first home buyers. If you'd like to learn more about the right process and avoid making rookie errors, become an educated home buyer. Head over to the website, check out your first home buyer guide the course that we have created for you. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss an episode. And if you've liked what you've heard today, please give us an iTunes review. It helps other people find us. And of course, I know it's a bit cringy, but we're going to ask for five stars. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. We hope you've found this really useful. And if you have, please share the love with others who you know are in the same boat. We'll be back next week with more priceless stuff.